Between 2003 and 2016, the average tariff for murder in England and Wales has increased by almost 40% to over 20 years of imprisonment. Today we try to understand how those given these long-term prison sentences deal with the reality of their situations. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. Ben Crew is Professor of Penology and Criminal Justice and Deputy Director of the Prisons Research Centre at the Institute of Criminology, University of Cambridge. He is one of the series editors of the Palgrave Studies in Prisons and Penology, is one of the launch editors of the new SAGE journal Incarceration, and is on the editorial advisory boards of journals including Punishment and Society and Theoretical Criminology. He is also a trustee of the Prisons Reform Trust. In recent years, Ben's main research projects have included studies of values, practices and outcomes in public and private sector corrections, study of prisoners serving very long sentences from an early age, study of the role of prison governors, and also a five-year, two million euro project titled Penal Policymaking and the Prisoner Experience, a Comparative Analysis, which involves extensive fieldwork in England and Wales and Norway. So, Professor Ben Crew, welcome to Justice Focus. Well, thank you for inviting me, Omar. No, thank you. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me to have a chat. Um, I've got lots I'd like to ask you about, not least the new journal Incarceration and your recent book, Life Imprisonment from Young Adulthood, which was co-authored with Susie Hulley and Serena Wright. But I just want to ask you a little bit about you and your personal journey in criminology first. I know you did a couple of master's degrees before you did your PhD at Essex University. So were you considering research in a few different or separate areas before you landed on prison experience? And was it always going to be research for you? Well, it's interesting that you talk about my criminology journey or something like that, because criminology wasn't of all that much interest to me until after I did my PhD. So when I was an undergraduate, I took one paper on what was called crime and deviance. And actually, the one of the people who supervised me is now my head of department, Lorraine Gelsford. Right, right. Uh, I've had to I've had to ask her to forget how desperately mediocre my essays were <laughs> at that time. But I'm sure that's not um, okay. I then and I then did a a master's in sociology um, at London School of Economics, and then a PhD in a in what appears to be a completely unrelated area. So, um, I my PhD was was on cultural production, mm. and specifically, it was on um, it it was a it was about the production and I suppose the formation of a new magazine market, um, lifestyle magazines for men. Okay. And uh, which at the time was quite a big thing. And, and it was during, it was towards the end of the PhD that I suddenly became interested in prisons. And that was mainly because of a seminar that I attended um, by Eamon Carabine. Right. In which he, he was describing, he was talking about the research he'd conducted on the Strange Ways prison riot. And 
it just grabbed my attention, particularly because he talked a little bit in that seminar about gender with regard to the relationship between prison officers mm-hmm. and the establishment. And I, I still remember him saying that prison officers referred to strange ways as the lady. I think that's that mm. was the term. And that just fascinated me. My PhD had really been about masculinity. Yeah. And, and I mean, p- perhaps I'm sort of uh, dramatizing my own memory of these things, <laughs> but, but in my, in my head, yeah. when, when Eamon talked about this, this phrase that the officers had um, for their prison, I, I was just really interested in what that said about gender mm. and the relationship between those staff and this particular institutional form. And so at that point, I, or at, at some point soon after that, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I started reading about masculinity um, in relation to imprisonment and eventually produced a research proposal called something like um, A New Society of Captives, which was a reference to the Gresham Sykes book. And then Hmm. the bit after the colon was masculinity and modern penal culture. And that became the basis for a three-year postdoc that that I did at the Institute of Criminology. But as I say, before that point... uh, I, just, I, I hadn't criminology wasn't something that yeah um, that I, I wasn't really I wasn't a criminologist until that point. And do you um, think you were still carrying through that sort of idea of lifestyles for men that you were studied earlier through into then just this new sort of space, but it's still with that earlier sort uh, of well, not? <laughs> not not exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the bridge between what I did. For my PhD and what I did subsequently was mm-hmm. masculinity and gendered identities mm. and so on. But quite quickly that morphed into something else because although I started the study wanting to focus specifically on um, masculinity and the way that men were shaped mm. and indeed the way imprisonment was shaped by discourses of masculinity mm. and, and frankly femininity too, I think I, I realized quite quickly that that masculinity was everywhere in a in the men's prison that I was studying, and that that actually to try to say anything useful about it, you also had to start. I also had to say, I had to start describing things like the everyday value system and mm. the hierarchy and uh, how power was exercised upon these men and how they sought to comply with it resist it give into it and all of those sorts of things yeah, yeah. So, so so it didn't take long before the study shifted from being something that was primarily about masculinity to being something that was about the prison much more generally mm. so w- what i've retained i think is an interest in gendered identities and i think that features in a great deal of the work that I do, even if it's not often the primary focus, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And, you know, I want to properly intro the book in a second, but I'm just going to skip to something I, I read when I was going through your book and where you were talking about um, how the women respondents in the book talked about how, well, they're more open about 
the trauma that they'd gone through. And, um, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of discussion about trauma-informed responses in prison, especially for women's prisons. But seeing as you're particularly interested in masculinity, do you, do you feel that there's much more room for delving into the trauma of long-term imprisonment for male in, in terms of actually applying a trauma-informed response with men in prison? Yes. So there's a sort of long version of an answer to that question, mm-hmm. which, which is to say that um, my colleagues, Susie Hulley and Serena Wright, yes. who worked with me on that on the project on um, long-term imprisonment and, and on the book, they, the two of them did all of the interviews with the women mm. in our study. And that, that was, um, that was partly because we thought that that would work better yeah. and it might be more ethical and, and so on. And they had, at this point, we had already done all of the interviews with the men in the study and Susie and Serena came back from those interviews feeling that the that the experience of those interviews had been extremely intense mm. and pretty hard for them to process um, because what we heard about in those interviews were cumulative and multiple forms of trauma that the women had experienced. So um, very often acute, really extreme physical abuse, um, very mm. often sexual abuse, and quite often... Um, deep feelings of abandonment because the family members that they thought would protect them had done the opposite. Mm. Um, They often felt the state had failed in its duty to protect them and so on. And of course, um, we heard similar sorts of stories um, or narratives from many of the men in our study, but but not as extreme and not as multiple if Mm -hmm. that makes sense now i guess what's difficult to know is whether whether how much of how much that is about the disclosure of uh or non-disclosure of certain sorts of events Mm. in other words we don't quite know whether the men in our sample have experienced similar forms of trauma as the women and but are more reluctant to talk about it i I'm not sure that I think that's the case. I think the women are slightly different from the men mm. in our study, but but we have noticed because we're um, because we're still looking at the interview transcripts from that study, we have started to notice more than we did initially how important themes of abandonment and uh, violence are in the lives of many of the men mm. in our study. So. Uh, so yes, I think I think applying a a lens that's to do with trauma is extremely useful, not just in in not just in helping us understand the lives of people serving very long sentences, um, but also in helping us understand what the experience of being given such a long sentence yeah. is really like. So so one of the I think one of the parts of our book that we that we talked about most was how we tried to communicate the the deep trauma of being given a sentence that was often uh, longer than the number of years that you had been alive mm. or could remember, 
um, knowing that you're knowing that everything you imagined about your future that would now have to be reconsidered yeah. uh, knowing that the relationships you cared about most in the world would would not stay the same and that many people that you loved might die before you're released and so on mm. um, and also perhaps this was the bit that we that, that was that was quite difficult to know how to write about um, was that often there was a form of our interviewees were experienced complex forms of grief <clears throat> that were partly to do with a kind of grief for your own life because of the realization that your life would be uh, completely changed by getting this sentence but also um, a grief for the person whose death you were involved with mm -hmm. so sometimes that was because people had killed people who they cared about yeah. um, and sometimes it was just that um, perhaps grief is not the right word but that, that, that people were often struggling to deal with images and memories they had of the death of someone else if that makes sense mm -hmm. and, and of course that's slightly tricky to write about because uh, it, it might well provoke a reaction that would say why should we care about the trauma of the perpetrators of yeah uh, of such a serious offense but but in some ways that's not what our study was about that's that's obviously I mean obviously victims are tremendously important mm. here but that mm. wasn't what the study was about yeah. in this case and what what we thought was important to try to communicate was that in the early years of a very long life sentence the 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 individual is dealing with all sorts of complex emotions including grief and hmm. trauma but also anger and bewilderment and so on and distress and that if you want to if you want to understand and therefore better uh, manage or assist prisoners in those early years there needed to be some recognition that that quite often what people were experiencing was um was was grief or trauma and so on yeah no definitely and i, I mean you ca i think you capture that so so often throughout the book and you know including so many quotes and you know sometimes more than quotes from the participants and it, it really gives um you know, an, an insight into how people are feeling. And it's, um, yeah, how how did you find actually, you know, witnessing that trauma so often? Did you did you leave the prisons each day and feel like you then needed to sort of debrief to someone because you've been carrying a lot of this emotional stuff yourself? I mean, I just yeah. wondered how you experienced it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it's always been my experience that when you do, field work in prisons it's very helpful to debrief mm -hmm. at the end of the day yeah. um we i mean one of the things that made that slightly harder in this case was that both susie and i had young children really young children mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. that we did the field work and um we, we say we kind of briefly discuss this in the um in the methods chapter of the book that we were slightly surprised by how little we had heard or read about what it's like to try to balance mm. family life with field work because what it meant was that we were both really keen to get back from the prison in time to see our children before they went to bed and 
the, the downside of that was I think that sometimes left Serena, who um, who did more field more field work than Susie and I, that left her sometimes you know alone in hotels somewhere without someone to right yeah spend a lot without someone to um, talk to yeah. about the interview. So and fresh, of course we yeah. we built yeah and we, we did we built in quite a lot of time to debrief and sometimes we would do that on the phone if people had had particularly difficult days uh, we would circulate notes and so on and I think all of that is very very important mm. when you're doing this kind of research yeah but it, yeah as I say it was made slightly more difficult just by our life circumstances uh, at the time but but yes it's, I think trying to make sense of what you've heard uh, is very important and that's both emotionally and analytically yeah. and in this case it was also because so many of the people we interviewed had been convicted under joint enterprise mm. and wanted to talk a lot about what they considered to be the deep injustice of their mm. conviction yeah. and it's very difficult in those situations not to get caught up in people's accounts of innocence and guilt yeah. and of course there's a point at which you have to let go of that because partly because that's not what the study was about but also because you can't ever really get to the end of that rope mm. um you, you just you can't ever really know the story of someone's yeah. innocence or guilt um we, we all felt i think we all felt quite a lot of um distress and anger about about the way in which joint enterprise was being used and the number of people we interviewed who we who we felt had been given exceptionally long sentences mm. without being the principal offender and and in the end we felt rather vindicated because the supreme court ruled that joint enterprise had been um or juries had been misdirected in their use of joint enterprise um and so so i guess some of our hunches and intuitions about some of these injustices yeah. were um were kind of consistent with what the law then decided yeah um and and that was that was quite a difficult part of this study in that the it, it just felt as though there were a set of people serving because sentence lengths have gone up so much um in recent uh, decades mm. It just felt as though the there were people who were not only being penalised when perhaps they shouldn't have been or not for such a serious offence, but also the penalty itself was so severe. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of dual injustices felt by some people in there. And it's, it's an, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because I am. Um, yeah. At the beginning of the book, you talk about the like the almost 40 percent increase in the, the average tariff for people convicted of murder uh, from between 2003 and 2016, going to, you know, the average tariff being over 20 years and, and seeing a similar swing in life sentences. And, and on top of that, a bit later on, you talk about how this, this has become normalised, this normalisation of longer sentences and how people get used to the idea of a certain number of years being just normal. And actually, it's, it's yeah. a huge impact on somebody's life. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why Susie and I set out to do this study in the first place was that on on the previous research project we'd worked on together, 
we'd both encountered people who were serving sentences that were about the same kind of length mm. that she and I had both been alive right, right. and were and were rather I mean I can still remember interviewing a prisoner in Garth prison who was quite young had a 25 year or 30 year sentence and when I asked him about what it felt like to serve a sentence of that length he seemed almost blasé about it hmm. and and that I guess I guess part of what this project has enabled me to do is work out what that what that really meant which wasn't that this was something that he didn't really care about of course I never really thought it would be but mm. but that but that it's so difficult in the early years of a long sentence to really come to terms with what it means that either it can be either it can be almost impossible to discuss or the only way of dealing with it is to be somewhat in denial about what it really means mm. for, for your existence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, I mean, we, I guess it's in the same way that I think as a society, we've become rather indifferent to or blasé about what it means to remove, to deprive someone of their liberty mm. for, years and years and years it's something we had to watch out for as a research team as well I think which is that um, you know I, I didn't want any of us to lose sight of the sort of existential implications of these long sentences yeah. just because we were you know, because we were coming across so many people who were serving them yeah um, but but yeah it's a it's a really startling increase not only in the number of people serving very long sentences but also the length of those sentences and the amount of time that people actually serve um, in other words it's not just that the tariff lengths on average the average tariff length has gone up it's also that people mm. are serving often many years in custody beyond that tariff point yeah no definitely and i think this is a perfect time for us to hear the clip that you've kindly recorded which specifically speaks to how people experience that length of time. This is an extract from chapter eight of the book, which is called Time and Place. In describing how it felt to be given such a long prison term at an early age, Participants who were in the early phase of their sentence conveyed a sense of temporal vertigo. One prisoner explained that when the judge passed his sentence, his future flashed before his eyes. Others conveyed a feeling of dizziness and disorientation about the time that lay ahead of them. Curtis said, I was 19 when I got sentenced. Basically, all them years I've just done growing up, I've got to do them again in prison, and it's like, whoa. We asked, could you get your head around it at all? And he said, no, not at all, no. I just didn't want to think about it, because I knew if I thought about it a lot, then it would just mess up my head. Yvette said, my little girl's going to be like 30 by the time I even get out. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I was 19 when I got my tariff. You've given me a tariff that was longer than I'd been alive, and it's like, whoa. Comments of this kind illustrated two main issues. 
The first was the sheer difficulty of conceptualising the amount of time due to be served. Samuel, who was one year into a 25-year prison term that he had received when aged 19, explained that, quote, It's a bit uncomprehensible, really, your sentence, kind of imagining that amount of time, end quote. Similarly, Martin reported that he, quote, had no concept of 18 years of life, end quote, when he was sentenced, and that it took him years to be able to, quote, imagine that amount of time before it was fucking overwhelming, end quote. Being given prison terms that were often longer than the number of years they'd been alive meant that many prisoners had no reference point for what they now faced. As Karen summarised, quote, I didn't know what it felt like to live 20 years, end quote. Many participants could only make the length of their sentence meaningful with reference to the years of their own consciousness or using children as a temporal yardstick. For example, Oscar said, It's a bit daunting at times because when I first went to jail, my friend just had a kid and I'm thinking his kid is going to be my age, what I am now, when I get out. So it's mad really, but you try not to think about it. You try to take it day by day and crack on, really. Blake said, the main thing I think about is my daughter. By the time I'm eligible for parole, my daughter will be the age that I am now. References to the growth of others in terms of age or size were common, as if participants were rooting an otherwise intangible sense of time in some kind of physical reality. Dell, for example, noted that, quote, when I came into prison, my nephew was a little short fat thing but now he's six foot, he's got a moustache, things like that, end quote. It was significant that the sentence was best gauged not through the development of self, but others. The second issue was expressed in Curtis's final comment, that thinking about his sentence length would, quote, just mess up my head, end quote. Some interviewees were relatively sanguine about life after release, commenting that re-entering the free community in their late 30s or early 40s meant that they would still have plenty of life to live. That is, one of the few advantages of being imprisoned at an early age was the possibility that there would still be time left to build a meaningful existence. However, for prisoners who were in the early phase of their sentence, to think about the intervening years, those that would be spent within prison, felt impossible or psychologically hazardous. Alfie said, I try not to think about the length, 22 years, I don't want to think about that. I just take it day by day because I can't change anything. So the more I stew on it, it's just going to mess my head up in it. Carl said, I just take each day as it comes. And I think that's the easiest way because if you start thinking too far ahead, then it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder if you take it in too big a chunk. Prisoners at this sentence stage were unable to consider their sentence in its temporal entirety either because it was beyond them to grasp or conceptualise it, or because they feared that doing so would be damaging to their mental health. To quote one of our female participants, Jackie, I don't ever, ever, ever think about it as a whole, because as soon as I do, I feel my head going west and I'm like, oh no, I can't do that amount of time. And then that's when, like, the suicidal thoughts start coming into my mind.
Great. Thank you for that excerpt. It's um, yeah, really interesting. So it's from chapter eight and that's called Time and Place, that chapter. And um, so I just want to ask off, off, the, off the back of that, what made you choose that particular extract to talk about? Well, I, I think a couple of things. One is just the, it feels like a very powerful way of communicating mm. the the sort of fundamental distress of coming to terms with such a long period of time in custody. Yeah. And also it speaks to one of the main themes in the book, which is that the the men and women who we interviewed who were early on in their sentences were effectively drowning um, mm. em- emotionally tr- in the sense that... So, so they very often used a language... I mean, they, they did use a lot of water metaphors, metaphors to do with mm, mm. so treading water or sinking and so on. Um, yeah. Uh, and and the, in those... I really liked the... Sorry, I was just going to say, I really liked the the phrase you used temporal vertigo right at the beginning there to describe the sort of yeah the the situation they're in because it yeah because it felt as though when people described it it was as though people couldn't not so much look down which i guess is the experience of vertigo for people who Mm -hmm. um who experience it in relation to height but that they couldn't they couldn't look forwards, if you know what I mean. They couldn't get mm. their head around what this length of time would be. And so as yeah. as the extract communicates, um, either they just didn't have any yardsticks for really having a sense of that many years ahead, or mm. or they couldn't look down or you know look to the future because of the impact it would have on their mental health. And yeah. um it's quite interesting because it's not, I'm not sure that I had any way of really understanding that mm. until, uh, and I don't mean to sound flippant. So I, I need to, I need to kind of qualify what I'm saying by making it very clear that I'm not trying to say that these two situations are comparable, but, um, but when, when lockdown began and, uh, I think there was a, I think for many people and I, felt it too I had a very slight understanding of what people meant in that it was quite hard to think at the start of it that it might go on for months and months and months um, mm. and so what people often said to us in the study which was you, ha- you just have to do it day by day you can't think any further ahead yeah. than that you just get through the day uh, you know I had lockdown and everything that came with it including homeschooling and so on with all the all of those pressures um, mm. I, I had a, I guess it gave me a very small sense of why, of what people had meant when they talked about living day by day and not being able to think ahead. And as I say, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not making any claim that these situations are at all comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it, but there, there was, there was some similarity there, which is that, that when you're experiencing something unexpected and difficult, uh, there are strategies you, that you have to adopt either consciously or consciously just to to get to the next step as it were yeah but this was exceptionally bleak for the people in our study because when they 
because they couldn't think about their sentence in its entirety, they would often say to us, well, I, I just have to take every day as it comes and, mm, yeah. and the next day I start again. If, you, if you're serving 25 or 30 years in custody, that's a terrible number of days to have to experience that yeah. thing. What, what the, the, we deliberately interviewed people who were at different stages of their sentence. So some people who were towards the beginning, some people who were around the midpoint of their tariff, and then people who were near to their tariff point or beyond it. Yeah. And those that were further along had found ways of, I guess, planning and managing time. So yeah. So what I described before, which was this sense that you couldn't think ahead, you had to do everything day by day, that was something that people found a way beyond eventually. And so, mm. so the people who were further into their sentences had often they'd found ways of plotting out the remainder of their sentence, either breaking it into chunks or giving themselves milestones that might be to do with what kind of prison they got to or what kind of educational qualifications they might have and so on. Mm. And they'd also found more productive ways of actually using their time so that instead of seeing time as something that had to just be disposed of or sort of got rid of, they talked about being able to use time in a way that was um, productive for them. Yeah, and I really liked you. You kind of discussed that topic in several different ways throughout the book. And there's one section that you called life histories, which is sort of a, a small, small um, sample of almost like portraits of different people at different stages, yeah. you know, early stage, mid stage, post tariff even. Um, and obviously, you've just picked a handful there to to demonstrate the variety of different experiences. And so I was just wondering, how did you how was that process? Obviously, it was between the three of you choosing who yeah. to put forward for those portraits. And was it the sort of the most typical ones you wanted to show or the ones that stood out as the most interesting, some most readable kind of ones? Like how, how was that process between well, the three of you of picking? Well, I think sometimes these things are quite hard to remember but i th i think what yeah, okay. <laughs> i think it was mainly that we we wanted to show a range of life experiences um mm. that we were very aware that that the book presents that, that, that what there was a risk that the book would suggest that there was only one that there was a kind of singular experience of serving a, right, a life right. sentence. Yeah. Now we did find some really consistent patterns um, that that sort of that there were obviously differences differences between the men and the women in particular, but generally we felt as though um, the the descriptions and themes were were really quite similar. So so we felt it was possible to say. To, to make certain sorts of generalizations and at the same time mm. what we didn't want to do was either was either suggest that there was no variation or to i guess to flatten the the experiences of individuals themselves because uh, so, so i think when th this is always a, a problem with with what happens when you transform lots of interviews with individuals who you feel you get to know to some degree mm. 
in the interview situation and then you transform it into a book that that in effect cuts up their life into thematic chunks and so yeah. that the, there's a sort of damage that you do to the integrity of the individual when you do that because it means the reader never really gets a sense of the um of the fullness of life of the individuals whose interviews are contributing to it so mm-hmm. so part of what we wanted to do was to make sure that we rendered visible the the sort of the I, I guess the the entirety of or the fullness is a better term yeah uh, of the lives of some of the individuals prior to then engaging in a slightly more abstracted analysis mm, so yeah so we just felt as though we should provide a reasonable um, a reasonably sort of representative set of yeah, a breadth of, of different of, yeah a breadth of narratives that otherwise were were likely to get lost or the the sense of the fact that these were that these were actual people um, mm. we didn't want to lose that um, within the book and what I found interesting as well is that you just mentioned there that there were some commonalities between between a lot of the interviewees and uh, in chapter five under coping and adaptation you mentioned how there's this um, sort of coming to terms moment of realization that a lot of people experience and that um, yeah. you know I was reading about one one guy who was playing computer game and then all of a sudden kind of spun out and had a very yeah. you know specific experience and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that yeah so this this was a this this was something that was pretty common and that our mm. interviewees themselves often commented on as being a a, a a shared experience which was that there was quite a long period of coming to terms with the sentence that that would often last several years and during those years uh, what our participants said was that during those years they were often uh, overwhelmed with feelings of resentment about their conviction mm. or anger at themselves uh, sometimes anger at others but very often directed at themselves even if they didn't realize that at the time um, yeah. and also forms of denial um, so not just legal denial though uh, though that that clearly occurs and the reason I say that clearly occurs is that some people who we interviewed who were several years into their sentence would say I you know, I, I appealed my conviction, even though I knew I had done it. Other people mm. were, were in denial in rather different ways. Either they just, they genuinely, I think, tried to tell themselves that they hadn't done this thing, because to, to acknowledge that they had would require them to reconsider who they were as people. Mm. Or or forms of denial that were of the kind that I mentioned earlier, which were uh, so, so a, a form of denial that said, actually, the sentence isn't so long, or I'm just not going to think about how long it is because that will um, that will be psychologically distressing. Mm. But but after yeah. what people tended to say to us was that after between you know four years, six years, something like that 
that eventually there was they came to realize that they had to confront the sentence head on they had to fully recognize that this was a this was a situation that they were in and that was um inescapable and therefore had to try to build a life of some sort within the prison itself so i think the mm. period that preceded this moment of realization you it, it, in that time people were often find were often finding ways of saying the prison is not my life my life yeah still exists out there or i'm not going to be here forever or i'm not going to be here for for as long as my sentence says i'm going to be here mm. Mm. but that trying to trying to sustain that for over a very long period of time became exceptionally difficult and that actually there was some relief in in recognizing or coming to terms with the fact that actually I'm going to be here for a really long time and if that's the case I need to find some way of making my life not just survivable but also um meaningful and purposeful and so mm. often it was after that point and that point of realization was was often the result of some sometimes that came about not not just because of the passing of time but because there was something like coming off drugs or dealing with a mental health problem or that that kickstarted a process of wanting to look forwards as mm. it were and so at that point people would often um begin to engage more in education or um or religious practice or therapy and those things could also precipitate mm. this this these moments of realization too so mm. so those were quite important um turning points for people and in really interestingly we were told very consistently that coming to terms with the sentence so the number of years that you were going to be in prison was much easier and preceded the um the process of coming to terms with the offence itself in other right. words that it was yeah. easier to 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 be at peace with knowing that you were going to spend many years in prison than to fully process mm. um what it meant to be in some way involved in someone else's death and of course this doesn't apply yeah. to those people that who said they had not been involved there were still mm -hmm. quite a lot of people who said that um but but very many of our interviewees said that the real struggle of the sentence was the was the sort of existential confrontation that was required to to deal with the fact that not only had your life been irrevocably changed by getting a sentence but that your life and lots of other people's lives had been similarly changed by the fact that there had been a murder yeah yeah and i guess i guess linked to that there's a similar point that came up a little later in the book as well in terms of how many people reflected that you know they did have a moment where they did engage more of a rehabilitation and were more ready they were very different people and they were ready to be yeah. reintegrated and there seemed to be this number of, of around you know around a decade where they felt that they'd done a lot a lot of work and anything other than that is just then damaging for people and so i wanted to ask you about that in 
in a way for us to start to talk about how do you feel about your work and your research versus sort of the policy world and and do you do you see your work as purely sort of exploratory or or are you driven by something that you want to see policy changed um I mean, I'm not sure that I would say that I'm driven by the desire for policy change. Mm. That that's never policy change has never really been the starting point for my research. But mm-hmm. but of course, I ended up choosing topics that have policy relevance, and I do have views about them, and I, and I do want the research to to be seen by people who can put in place progressive um, uh, changes in policy. The, mm-hmm. I, I th- the thing I think I've always felt is that, that that the distinction between academics and policymakers is quite helpful, and and maybe the reason why I feel that is that I've I've never been convinced that I'm particularly good at working out the ways in which the research that I've been involved in might have implications for practice, but mm. but I mean I'm engaged with practitioners and policymakers in all sorts of ways it's just I think what I'm trying to communicate not very effectively is that um, that that I think there's a sort of a slight membrane between what I'm Mm, able to do and see and what policy makers and practitioners are able to see um, and that no sure I find that really interesting because uh, I, I completely agree there's you know I've speak to lots of different people on the podcast and through my different roles, I've met with lots of different people. And yeah, some people feel very firmly that they are practitioners and they might have time to, you know, do other things or they're very much researchers and other people are there to interpret it. And then there are some people like to straddle more than one role, but as I always find it interesting to see what it is that, uh, where, where people like to position themselves in yeah. there and where they feel like they have the best, um, best impact. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just don't think I'm very good at straddling those two roles. But, right. but what I do try to do is to put myself in a in a position where I make it as easy as possible for the people who are good at, at those forms of translation to actually do that translation. So, hmm. um, so I'm I've been very involved over many years in the so so at the Institute of Criminology we run a part time course for um, in it's in applied criminology penology and management and it's it's a part-time mm. master's course for practitioners working mainly in prisons and probation that is a fantastic way of engaging with people on the front line of policy and practice mm. and and what works really well about it is is exactly this kind of translation that i'm describing whereby we as academics are providing practitioners not just with empirical not just with research findings, but also with theories and frameworks that help them make sense of their world. Mm. But they make but they make sense of our world in ways that are often unexpected and in ways yeah. that I'm not sure we'd be able to see ourselves. So so I so that that is one way in which I've engaged mm. with practitioners. But also over the years I guess I've built up a very strong set of relationships with people um, in particular in the prison service, in some of the prison reform groups, so Prison Reform mm. Trust, Howard League, and so on. And I I mean, I find those 
I find that role, or at least that that position of engaging with practitioners and policymakers is is quite difficult. It's easy to get that stuff wrong. Um, mm. It's important to hold the line and to not simply not to sugarcoat difficult findings and so on. So so it's not that I I don't find it particularly easy, but I do find it quite mm. gratifying. Um, and and actually, I do think that those are quite they, they can be effective ways of um, of of achieving certain sorts of policy goals. And as I say, those policy goals are not normally the starting point for a piece of research, but they are for me quite an sure. important end point. Yeah. And it's interesting in your concluding chapter, you include some quotes from Phil Wheatley, who's the former director general of the National Agenda yeah. Management Service. Um, and, you know, I liked it because you put to him or your team put to him, you know, what if, if he were still in charge, what parts of your study would he be most interested in? And uh, I thought that was really interesting. Well, this was, I think we, Susie, Hully and I interviewed Phil, mm. who, who I've known for some time because um, through other bits of research I've done and through the Prisons Research Centre and so on. And I wanted to talk to someone who would be, who I thought would understand the study and who would have a sense of... Mm the ways in which the study might end up being of relevance and someone mm. that had that had known the system for long enough to be able to say something about the the way that the use of long sentences and life imprisonment had changed and 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 and, and Phil was one of the people that that said this very important thing which is that um one of the things he I remember he he described the fact that early on in his he, he had a memory of being early in his career as I think an assistant governor in a prison and someone coming into the prison with something like an eight-year sentence and everyone mm. being kind of preparing themselves and being extremely shocked at what you know what a long what a very long sentence this was well nowadays mm. eight years really doesn't seem like very much because mm. we're so accustomed to reading about much longer sentences yeah um and so it's just worth reminding ourselves that things haven't always been like this and that yeah i'm i I don't think the evidence is certainly the evidence is not that the that the increase in lifers and in the length of life sentences is to do with is is only to do with changes in the severity and frequency of murders that's that's not the mm. case it might be some of the explanation but it's certainly not all of it so so all of this is is, is very very important and i think the other thing that that i wanted to say about that exchange with phil wheatley is that in my experience people lots of people within the prison service are very aware of and despairing about the wider political and sentencing climate mm. and so what Phil said to me I can't quite remember the quote uh, but you know what what he was really saying to me was we've had this experiment in some senses mm. with um increasing I've got the quote in front of me I was going to okay. ask you about it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny you said that yeah so he, he said you've you've quoted him as saying I think politicians have gained 
have engaged in a sentencing experiment with prisoners. And lots of that has been about keeping, keeping the public happy. And so, yeah, I think that's, a, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, you, you then go on to say there are good grounds to believe that public opinion in relation to sentencing is actually much more nuanced than the politicians appear to believe that it is. And they think that they need to keep the only way they'll win votes is by constantly being more punitive and, you know, tougher on crime in quotation marks. And, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on that sort well, this, of public well, politics relation. Well, this was also quite hard to write about. And, and the three mm. of us talked about it quite a lot because, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't want to sound as though we had a, as though we were indifferent to the suffering of victims. Um, yeah. And victims were really a kind of absent presence within throughout the study in that we thought mm. about them a lot, but also our, our participants did. So what we didn't find was that, was that our participants were themselves indifferent to what they had done and the trauma that they they themselves had often caused or contributed towards. What what Mm. we found generally was remorse and shame and a desire to make amends. Mm. And so we were, so, so in some sense, the the victim is everywhere or the victims of these offenses are everywhere within the book, even though we didn't interview victims, the book wasn't about victims and so on. But but some of the comments we make in the conclusion, I, I, I guess we wrote with some discomfort because we don't really know what victims of these very serious offences think. Um, mm. we, we do know there's plenty of evidence that the attitudes of the public towards punishment are more complicated and often less punitive than politicians claim. And that the more mm. that people know about the details of an offence, the less punitive they become. Um, perhaps that is different in the case of murder. But but what I, d- what I do think and what we said in the conclusion was that we're doubtful that any kind of sentence length, however long, can really compensate for what it must be like to lose someone yeah, through a murder. And so... So the risk, if you're trying to just satisfy um, a, a sort of thirst for vengeance, or or even mm. just if you're trying to satisfy the victim's sense of justice and injustice, is that it's a completely elastic thing. Yeah. That yeah. It, 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 I'm not at all convinced that 30 years or 40 years or 50 years will make someone who has recently lost mm. a loved one to murder feel that actually things will be okay that it doesn't strike me that that's what grief and bereavement are really like so we what we wanted to do in the conclusion was just reflect on uh what we considered to be the wastefulness of extremely long sentences in terms mm-hmm. of um just the, or at least that there's a carelessness with which these very long sentences are given out and that part of what we're trying to do in the book is to, um, I mean, this sounds a bit grander than I mean, but to make that carelessness less likely by mm. by by describing the 
both the people to whom these sentences are given and also the, the depth of the experience that they have, the sort of the depths of their own trauma. Mm. Um, and without wanting to state the obvious, the fact that these are not monstrous individuals who, um, who, who kind of callously celebrate the fact that they've been involved in someone else's murder. That's that. Yeah. It, it could, the, the truth couldn't be further from that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's a, it's a debate that keeps coming back up. And even in the news this morning, um, I was watching BBC and there's discussion of the, the possibility of the law being changed where, um, if, if an officer has been killed on duty, the person is given a mandatory life sentence. And that's come about because of the, uh, the widow of PC Harper who was killed while on duty is pushing, pushing for that law change. And, um, it's, it's so tricky when obviously we have no, no idea what the, the trauma of, of, of the, of the victim in, in that situation. And, but the consequence of a law change in this in this instance would you would would be incredibly far-reaching and um, yeah, thinking yeah. about life sentences. Yeah, I mean they already yeah, sorry, already yeah. do have a mandatory life sentence for murder. So I so yeah. Um, but but I suppose what what tends to happen is that these these pieces pieces of legislation that are put in place as a result of these sorts of campaigns tend to just ratchet up. Um, it's very it's much harder to ratchet back down and yeah that worries me and also I tend to think that the that relatives of the victim are often exploited in these situations mm. their grief is exploited yeah. by 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 the media for, for whom this is an easy story yeah. um, and that actually they should be acting slightly more responsibly mm. I mean, I mean, who knows that, that, that again, I, I, I just can't claim to know enough about the people who are engaging in these campaigns, but, um, but generally I'm, I'm generally, I'm not convinced that it's very sensible for policy to be made in this way. Yeah. And as I say, part of the reason for that is that of course, if you're the, if, if it's, if someone you love has been the victim of a murder, you have extremely strong feelings about what should be done to the perpetrator that strikes me as completely natural it's just not a good basis mm. for um policy change and legislation yeah yeah okay well i think yeah let, let's leave that there because i want to finish on, on focusing on you and and your research process and the way you think about your work a little bit if you if you don't mind and just i just i just like to ask everybody you know when when you're deciding on what you're going to be working on for the next few years or when you're reflecting on the work that you've already done what is it that you're you know what does impact mean to you what do you hope to achieve with it and what's what drives you okay well i guess one of the things we're quite interested in shaping is to do with sentencing so we would very much like to see a reduction in um tariff lengths for um, murders. Partly that would bring us in line with other European countries, but also with our own past. Mm. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, tariff lengths have gone up very considerably in the last few years, but it's easy not to notice that that's happened. 
Yeah. And so I'd like us to return back to um, to the kinds of tariff lengths that we saw um, 10, 20 years ago. Um, even they are quite long compared to many other European countries. Hmm. Um, secondly, we're, we've been involved for some time in um, discussions around the use of joint enterprise. Um, there are clearly yes. situations when the use of joint enterprise sentencing is um, legitimate, but there are also plain injustices for, particularly for many secondary offenders whose involvement in a murder might have been um, very minimal or completely disputed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's 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 work that could be done too with regard to the differentiation of life sentences, so that um, not all um, murders carry a mandatory life sentence. Um, And some of this work we're hoping will be pursued by um, some of the work being done by the Prison Reform Trust, who for the next few years are going to be working um, in and around this topic. And we have a a close relationship with them and the people who are working on this. So we're we're hopeful that there might be um, some changes with regard to sentencing and sentence lengths. And then I think the other thing that we hope the book will achieve is that it will um, that it, that it might lead to some changes in the way that long-term prisoners are um, treated within the prison system and on mm. um, when they're released uh, on parole. So um, some of that is about making sure that there are better opportunities for long-term prisoners to make a meaningful life for themselves while they're in prison. So right. opportunities to make amends, um, hooks for change, so uh, better, so increased and better opportunities for them to find ways, find productive ways of occupying themselves, giving things mm. back and so on. But partly because so many of our participants wanted to give something back, whether that was mentoring younger or, or, or lifers who, who were at the start of sentences or being involved in the community in some way. Mm. And also things like therapeutic input. So because I've talked quite a lot about the, 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 the basic grief and trauma of people serving a long sentence, it just seems very sensible to have opportunities in place for people to explore mm-hmm. themselves, their histories, what they've done, how they can change and so on. And rather more broadly than that, I suppose we, we hope that there's greater recognition of who these men and women are as individuals, what their lives have been like and what they're going through. So the, the sort of depths of their experience, because as the number of people serving very long sentences has gone up, one one of the many downsides of that is that I think it's easy for prison staff to stop noticing that these are extraordinarily long, extraordinarily yeah. long sentence lengths. So yeah. it's very you can see why prison staff might themselves become complacent about what it means for someone to have 20, 25, 30 years ahead mm. of them, and therefore to not recognise that that those people might need more assistance and support and mentoring throughout their sentences than some other prisoners, or at least different forms of mentoring yeah. and support. Yeah. So so I guess both in terms of sentencing and also um, the treatment and management of long-term prisoners, we, we hope that the research will have some kind of impact, mm. however 
slow or uh, you know the, these things are they sometimes change is extremely slow and relatively minor but as I say that the fact that the prison reform trust is now picking up on some of the work that we've done yes. gives us some optimism about these yeah. things great no that sounds really interesting well perhaps if I ask in a slightly different way then and if you I know that you've listened to a few episodes, so you know that there's a question that I tend to ask, but just th thinking about the impact and, and your work, you know, if there was, if we could create a room where you could put anybody in there for half an hour and, and have that kind of discussion that you've just described with them, look, who is it that you are really trying to get through to the most and, and what kind of key messages would it be that you're trying to say? Well, I think the people I would want around the table would be um, politicians that might not make for the best mm. dinner party. But the, the reason I say yeah. that is that over the years, I've actually had really good and productive contact with people in the prison service. And, um, right. and those are the kinds of um, kind of critical friend relationships that I was discussing before, where I think you don't have mm -hmm. to always mm. agree. And quite often I've disagreed or, they've disagreed with me about findings and recommendations but but those conversations have not been too difficult to have over the years and I, and with the with this long term prisoners study my experience has been that almost everyone within the system is feels as though sentence lengths are excessive and the number of lifers that we have mm. is excessive and that this is very bad news in all sorts of ways not just for the individuals but also for the system itself the the people yeah. who it's much much harder to get to are um ministers so um so the reason why i would tr i would want them around the table is that getting to them and communicating with them um in the in the way that I've described, which is to, 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 to sort of, to demonstrate to them that you understand that they're under certain sorts of pressures too. Um, mm -hmm. But that, you know, they're the people who are particularly difficult to access. Now, there are some politicians who I know would not listen sympathetically to uh, the kind of conclusions that we've drawn from our long-term prisoner study. But I have some faith that some of them would if they were given sufficient time to understand mm -hmm. enough about the topic. So I'm I'm a bit of a sceptic, but not a total cynic about politics <laughs> and the political yeah. process. And, and, and I guess what's been very difficult over the years is, well, with this project, is knowing that all sorts of the most of the people who are best informed about these matters and particularly those on the front line i think are pretty much in agreement with many of the things that we've concluded but they're not the ones that have mm. the power to make some of the most important decisions yeah so so i think this for me yeah. would be all about reaching the people who can make those decisions Great. Thank you so much for that. And just before we go, I know that you've recently launched this new journal, Incarceration, with a few other scholars. So I thought I'd give you a chance to just mention that and say what it's about. Yeah. So um, this is a new journal that um, that came out, 
I guess officially a couple of months ago is called Incarceration and International Journal of Imprisonment, Detention and Coercive Confinement. Um, so I'm, I'm editing this with um, Yvonne Jukes from the University of Bath and Thomas Ugelvik from the University of Oslo. And um, what we, we, so just in case the title itself doesn't spell it out enough, we're, we're interested not just in prisons, but also prison-like institutions and practices. Mm -hmm. So we want to, I guess we're interested in confinement um, in other sorts of institutions or areas. So that would include police custody, um, immigration detention centres, secure psychiatric hospitals, and so on. And although the term is a bit overused, I find we're, we want the journal to be genuinely interdisciplinary. So, um, so we, you know, we would like to get submissions not just from criminologists, but also geographers, historians, mm. economists, um, we're interested in cultural and literary representations of incarceration and so on. So, um, so yes, we'd, we'd very much like, um, submissions, um, and, uh, and yes, please, you know, I hope people will visit the journal website just to see the kind of, um, articles that we're looking to publish great and i'll make sure I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for that so everyone can find it easily great lovely professor ben crew thank you so much for being on the show thank you very much okay thanks for listening this was the last episode of the series so I want to say a massive thank you to all my brilliant guests who have come on the show to share their ideas and passions. And I'm really grateful to them for how open and honest they've been about the realities of trying to forge some kind of change in the criminal justice world. When I started recording the first episode, I hoped a few people might find it interesting. And 25 episodes later, we've more than 13,000 listens across 65 countries. So thank you to everybody who's been involved and lastly most importantly i want to say thank you to you dear listener for spending some time with me and the guests and thank you for sharing the podcast with others and please continue to do so because the whole point of this was to try and spread the positive impact of the work as far as possible and of course i'd love to hear any feedback you have or any ideas you have for future seasons so yeah, I hope to be back at some point in 2021. But until then, thanks so much. See you next time. Cheers.